Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, this is Johnny Eccles from Love, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. History in five songs. With host Martin Popoff. A production of Pantheon Podcasts. Let's rock out with Martin. Yes, indeed. Welcome back again for another episode of History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff, brought to you by the good folks at Pantheon. Pleased, as always, to be part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Uh, available on Spotify, iTunes, and over 40 other podcast platforms. Okay, so this new episode, we're going to call this Episode 31, The Very, Very Strange Story of Ram Jam. Um, long story, I did this book series called Ye Old Metal. There were six of them. And one of the cool things about it was this was essentially my uh, my time to write the story of bands that I'm not going to do a full book on, but I love I'd love to get the story. What are some of the big mysteries out there? And this Ram Jam story, the story of this first record, self-titled uh, 1977, and the second record, Portrait of an Artist as uh, as a Young Ram, 1978 was one of the great mysteries. There was not much on this, and it turns out the story was absolutely bizarre. Um, a little bit of a link to the to the to the way records were made in a pop way in the past, to uh, to crime, everything. Uh, this story had uh, all sorts of stuff. So I definitely this is one that's been in the back of my mind. I hope. Uh, you enjoy this one. I know it's a pretty obscure topic, um, but yeah, stay with me because it is a really cool story. Um, and uh, and please share it. I mean, I think once you hear it, you'll realize that it's a cool story. I mean, most of you, uh, you know, part of the Facebook page, everybody who's listening, I mean, you guys are pretty smart music people. You probably know some of the details of this story, uh, but it is it is a doozy. And, uh, and it fits well to this five-song uh, concept. So, to be able to compartmentalize things and have me not just blurt everything out because I'm so excited about this topic, let's go track by track and the concepts will uh, will unfold as they may. So let's start with the first song right now. So this is episode 31, the very, very strange story of Ram Jam. Taking a listen to this, this is Black Betty. <laughs> All right, so yeah, the the story starts strange right away. So there's this song, Black Betty. There's a guy in this band, Bill Bartlett. He's got this band called Starstruck. And they keep playing this song around the uh, the New Jersey, Long Island area. And it always goes over a storm. It's great. So he's he thinks... 
let's uh, let's figure out. There's these these Kazanitz Cats guys, the K and K team, Jerry Kazanitz and Jeff Katz, um, who seem to be good at, at you know at making these novelty records work. They had this uh, history, you know, some say kind of a bit of a dark, corrupt history, maybe with the 1910 Fruit Gum Company, Ohio Express, Music Explosion, um, and so they have this song. And it's, as you can tell, it's kind of a novelty song, and it, it kind of, uh, it, it has that narrative of, you know, how Led Zeppelin is borrowing and expanding and stealing and making exciting the blues. Well, this is an old, um, you know, a Huddy Ledbetter song, Leadbelly song. But as Mike Scavone, um, the, um, the, lead, uh, the lead singer of this band, explained to me, I interviewed these guys, um, three of them to come up with this story in this, in this Yield Metal story. As he told me, you know, he says... Like the original is is really nothing more than vocals and a hand clap. So this final version that they came up with, um, obviously, it's a very hooky song. It draws you in, and this is why it's a big hit. I mean, this is the ultimate one-hit wonder band, Ram Jam, aren't they? I mean, this is all they ever did. But you do hear this song in in sports uh, in sports arenas and stadiums all the time, and always, always, uh, you know, I always crack a smile when I hear it because I know this whole story. But uh, so what you're hearing here is a song that's a bit of a novelty song. It's got vocal hooks, drum hooks, guitar hooks. It's even got like sound effects with the, you know, with gongs and stuff like that. It it reminds me, it, it puts you in that sort of frame of mind of like a sweet ballroom blitz or a sweet action or a Bohemian Rhapsody or even like a Fleetwood Mac, oh well, or the chain sort of thing. It's got all these stops and pregnant pauses and the beat doesn't, you know, it's got, it's got a Southern rock jam in it. It's got almost like proggy sections. It's just very, very weird. Weird. And in fact, it doesn't even have a chorus. It just has these these crazy verses that feel like a chorus. So the crazy thing about this is is this is uh, the you know track one side one of this album on on Epic Records. But it is, in fact, sung by Bill Bartlett, who's not the lead singer of the band, officially, Mike Scavone is, and it's not even the band playing it. This is the band Starstruck playing it. So it's a, it's almost a little bit like that Bon Jovi story with the runaway song and then transitioning into the album with the band. I mean, there's this song, and like, how do we build an album maybe around this song? Um, this is kind of the same thing. They essentially built an album around this Black Betty song. So without saying more about the album... Let's move into a second track and then and then I'll talk about the album. So take a listen to this, our second track on History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff. This is something called Right on the Money. I'm so Okay, so what we get with this song now is is the feel of the album. This album is essentially like a uh, it's like a a badly written Foghat album or a badly written it's like a BTO album. Uh, it's a little bit like lower level weak in the knees kiss, like Miss Mr. Speed or Christine Sixteen or Nothing to Lose sort of thing. It's it's a little behind the times, but it's also a little heavy. It's kind of southern rocky, as Mike says. It's got a little bit of a country element, not really. I mean, it's more like southern rock and heavy blues. And it's for 1977. You know, it's certainly punk is coming in, so it's not that. It's it's a little bit behind the times in that um, 
it's it's just got this old time song that has a lot of earthiness and blues to it and 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 sort of like a, like a real analog recording a couple other weird things about this. It's got, uh, you know, this song, All for the Love of Rock and Roll, which is written by the Tough Darts. I don't know if you remember that Tough Darts album, but I remember as a kid buying that thinking, oh, it's going to be a heavy punk album, and it really wasn't. Um, and then it's just got more of these, like, bluesy, heavy, southern rocky songs uh, throughout the whole thing. And, you know, I got to mention as well, the, the other funny thing is you look at this. And the front cover's got this sort of pyramid thing on it, and these two little astronauts looking at it. It's an illustration on the back. There's also an illustration of the guys. Um, and it, it looks like, like a Weather Report album or a Santana album or, or some other kind of Latin rock album. It doesn't look like a heavy rock album. Not that it is a really heavy rock album. It just it just feels like of that time where, eh, what is this thing? Oh, it's, it's like this curio whatever. Black Betty is a big song. Um, but the thing that happens with this album, and this, this will bear, bear on the story as we move on here, they do go out and tour it, and they have a good time touring it, and they play some big places, and they play with Cheap Trick and Black Oak, Arkansas. And as Mike told me, I mean, with that song going, Black Betty, this thing was becoming uh, quite a big hit. It got to around 450,000 copies, he thinks. He thinks it's probably a gold record. Black Betty was actually held back a little because the NA, uh, NAACP... Um, kind of got upset about it because it's a little bit about like a black prostitute and it's kind of like in a in a in a black argot uh somewhat but it's these white guys doing it and she has an illegit- illegitimate child and all this blah 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 of course it's a it's a lead belly song to begin with so there's there's a bit of an irony there but so there was some complaints about it in the eastern seaboard and it held it back a little and some radio stations took it off but it did become a hit um i you know mike believes it was like a gold single in canada and uh, possibly a gold single or album in Australia. It didn't go gold in in America, but this was a band sort of uh, on the move, and they were doing well. So that's our second song. This is a really good place to take a break. Let's take a little break and be back and uh, and fasten your seatbelts because it's going to get heavy. When we dropped the first few episodes of Rock and Roll Archaeology into the feed three and a half years ago, little did we know that this telling of rock and roll history would become a pantheon of rock and roll podcasts. Since many of you first joined us on our rock and roll exploration, the halls of the rock and roll pantheon have filled with shows like Deeper Digs in Rock, Rock and Roll Librarian, Muses, Art of Rock with Caution Friends, Real Rock with the Reverend Andy King, Miss Pamela's Pajama Party, Vinyl Snob, and more. We are proud of this one-of-a-kind approach to an audio magazine of high-quality shows. That is Pantheon, and thank you for your support. We couldn't have done it without you, our diggers who listen to all of our shows. And now, we are excited to let you know that every show available as part of Pantheon can be found in their own podcast feed to subscribe to in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review the shows you've come to love. We look forward to adding more shows to fill the halls here in our Pantheon of Rock and Roll and find them all at PantheonPodcast.com. Keep up the rockin'. All right, so here we are back again, History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff, the very, very strange story of Ram Jam. And here's where the strange gets even stranger. So these 
Kazanitz and Katz guys. Um, Mike says it's ma- it's mainly Jerry Kazanitz that it, that is pushing this. So so essentially, um, they're doing all these kind of financial shenanigans and stuff. Now this is according to Mike. Bill Bill seems to have got along with them, and it's funny. Mike and Jimmy, who I'll talk about in a minute. Um, you don't know him yet, uh, but they sent me some cool stuff, and Mike actually sent me the contract for this, and and the contract is between these producers. And Bill, although I, I, I believe, um, yeah, Je- uh, one of the guys signs it at the bottom. I think Jeffrey signs it at the bottom and Mike signs it and Bill signs it. But Mike seems to think they're on the road. They're doing well. This album's doing well. It's only three months later and they get the call to go back in the studio. And Mike says it was later explained to him that this was an old, you know, record guy trick, record company trick where... There's all these royalties that were about to having to be paid off because Black Betty's doing so well and the album's doing quite well. That one way for the the producers to keep all the money or the quote unquote producers managers is to send you back into the studio and on this un, unrecoupable uh, uh, or recoupable royalty situation, um, the 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 next album's going to cost a bunch of money. And guess what? Kazanitz and Katz owns the studio. So a big bill comes out for the for the use of the studio and all of a sudden the money flows to K&K and it doesn't go to the band. So this is this is Mike's explanation of why they were in the studio. Now, the cool thing that happens um uh okay, let's let's take a listen to this song first of all and and you'll understand why this why this story uh is so different. So take a listen to this. This is something called Just Like Me. All right, so raging heavy song. Now, why is this such a heavy song? Why is this record so different? Why is the sound so different? Uh, the the production, everything about it, the guitar sound, the the modern riffs. So while they're out touring the the previous album, they they had been a four piece, and they decided, okay, to make these songs sound good live, we need another guitarist. So they get this local guy, again a total unknown. His name is Jimmy Santoro. He comes from uh, the Hassles, I believe, which is Billy Joel's old band, one one of them, and uh, I think he had Attila too, didn't he? Right, that kind of pretty heavy one. Um, so, anyways. Jimmy comes into the band, and all of a sudden they're making this record. Now, now K&K, they all of a sudden are enamored, or Jerry is, with Aerosmith. Now, don't forget, these guys are on Epic. So so they're on Epic. Ted Nugent's on Epic. Cheap, Trip's on e- Cheap Trick is on Epic. And over on Columbia, you've got Derringer, you've got Blue Oyster Cult, you've got Aerosmith. So all of this very similar sort of, uh, you know, U.S.-grade hard rock heavy metal uh, is all together. So... So basically, he, he's saying, oh, you know, Aerosmith's more the thing going right now. Aerosmith, of course, had rocks and draw the line. They're doing great, right? So basically, he says, oh, make us, make us a record more like Aerosmith. This old, this old bluesy stuff, I don't know about it. So, so what happens at this point, which is really bizarre, is that 
Jimmy Santoro and the assistant engineer, this Steve Goldman, who's also a pianist and he's doing vocals, they're off to the side in the back room writing these new modern crushing heavy metal songs. And Bill Bartlett, who comes from, and he told me this, like I interviewed him about this, he comes from more of a country, he likes country guitar and blues, and he wanted to make an even bluesier album, more of a heavy blues album. He said it's kind of hard to explain, but, you know, really what he's saying is kind of like the first album. So he's out with the band with Howie and Peter writing these other songs. And where is Mike at this point? So, uh, you know, as Mike told me, like these guys, he says, we were all bad boys. We were partying, doing drugs, drinking. But Mike, he says, when you're shooting $300 of heroin and cocaine a day, you have to deal. So Mike is in some big legal trouble at this point. And he is not around because he's going through this legal stuff. So at the time... This these two parallel records were getting made. They're also auditioning singers and thinking Mike's not going to be around. And one of the guys they get in, this uh, Steve Tracy, I believe his name is. Where's my notes here? Anyways, so this other singer comes in and he actually sings two or three songs on the album. But also Mike walks in one day and they're auditioning lead singers. And some uncomfortable an uncomfortableness happens. And essentially what happens is they say, well, Mike, you're here. You're in the band. You know, why don't you uh, finish off the vocals of the album? So he does. So Mike Scavone is the singer on most of the songs on the second album and on the first album. Now, before we move on, well, no, let's move on. And then I, I want to reiterate a little bit about the heaviness of this record and the place it has in American rock history, or it should have. So let's go on to our fourth song. This is a little something called Runway Runaway. All right, so to reiterate again, this song is even more modern of riff than 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 um, just like me is, and this is all coming from the mind of Jimmy Santoro. Now he's no he's no metalhead. He's coming from you know, as Mike says and Jimmy says, you know, I like Jimmy Page. I was I was more of a that kind of guitar guy, like the loud heavy guitar. But he's actually reaching farther beyond than than what we should expect because you are actually hearing in something like Runway Runaway, you're hearing something almost as heavy and as cool and as modern as Judas Priest in this. Now. This album as a whole has about four and a half to five of these super heavy songs, but even the next level are songs that are a little more adjacent to what you heard on the debut, but even they are heavier and more energetic than on the debut. There's even a little something on here called Turnpike, which is essentially the only ballad. There's a couple of kind of funky ones that feel like your Sight for Sore Eyes or Last Child on an, on an Aerosmith album, but... Turnpike is a little bit like uh, Derringer Sweet Evil. Uh, there's this kind of uh, exorcist-like piano that goes on, and there's even a heavy part in it, like a true heavy metal part. So the whole record as a whole is is very, very heavy. And I liken this, I've... I really can't see any reason why this is an exaggeration. Now, we do say things like Rainbow Rising and Judas Priest Records and Black Sabbath Records. Sure, it's all British, but it's all kind of heavier than most things that have come out uh, in America to date. But I would put this second Ram Jam album, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Ram, 
in the top five heaviest albums out of America in the 70s. Um, five, six, seven. Okay, there's Riot and Arita. I mean, I, I can think of a few. There's the Legs Diamond, a uh, couple of albums, true. So, so maybe... Certainly, certainly top 10. Uh, but there's the Montrose album from 73. There's Van Halen's debut from 78. There's the second Van Halen. There is the Two Legs Diamond albums. There is maybe your favorite and heaviest Aerosmith album, maybe Rocks. But definitely Ram Jam. You know, Ted Nugent doesn't have a record as heavy as this Ram Jam album. This is how cool this is. Uh, and a lot of people don't know about it. Um, but... Um, but yeah, so I so I just want to want to say that like whole different band, but really only one different member of the band. Uh, but it's been transformed by Jimmy. So basically, there were these dueling albums getting made, and then at the end, it was just decided by K and K. Uh, let's just go with the heavy one. Let's just go with the heavy one. So so all of a sudden, this this raging absolute classic of a heavy metal album comes out. Um, now I'll finish the story because uh, it 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 remains weird. Uh, let's play our fifth track on this. This is my favorite track on the album. This is something called Gone Wild. Okay, I just love this song, and it's not even the most modern or riffiest or modern of riff or British of riff, whatever you want to call it, heavy metal song on it. Obviously, it has a little bit of a boogie-woogie structure to it, but it is so heavy. I literally have called this song over the years the rowdiest song of all time. It reminds me of, I grew up in Trail, BC, little town in British Columbia, and there used to be these bush parties where everybody would would like haul off on their vehicles out to the bushes where there's nothing around. It's pitch black. The place, you know, the party is lit by the lights of the vehicle. Speakers on the top. This is the absolutely perfect, if you can picture it, bush party heavy metal song. Play this song, please, please. For the sake of the children, go away after this and play the entire song, uh, Gone Wild, and you will be, you know, completely swept away by the infectiousness of the way this song just builds, the energy just builds and builds and builds, and it combusts, and then it builds again and combusts again. An amazing song. So yeah, I mean, our Bush Party albums were actually things like ACDC, Highway to Hell, and Back in Black, but I can picture this album being played there. You know, these are the types of parties where there's definitely going to be a fight, there's definitely going to be some alcohol poisoning and a couple of people are going to wander off into the bush and uh, and you'll never see them again. So so this is the kind of like it just feels like the heavy metal of the apocalypse of the of the late 70s sort of thing. An amazing amazing song. You know, what you can hear in here is this idea of the production where the vocal is mixed down a little low. So it's struggling to get out there through this through this crazy hoodlum rock, you know, back behind the backstop rock. The guitar solo, which just seems to be there all the time, perennially just squealing and trying to get out of this cage. It's there all the time. Raging, super heavy guitars guitar sounds, uh, buzzing bass sounds, just big drums, really cool tom fills. I just love this song, and that's why I wanted to play it last, and that's why I believe it's it's the greatest song on the record. Okay, so 
that's sort of in the nut in a nutshell the album uh other heavy heavy songs on here there's um there's pretty poison which is kind of funky for a little bit but it's got a super heavy part another crazy heavy one on here is hurricane ride but then saturday night's a little bit poppy a lot poppy maybe like i say there's the one ballad and then the other ones there's there's a pretty heavy heavy blues on here please please me which reminds me a little bit of the likes of like an aerosmith round and round off of toys in the attic um but all told, yes, the first album, unremarkable. Black Betty is very cool, though. But the second album, you will be very, very surprised. Now, one of the cool things about this record, well, let me tell you. So two reasons. This is, this is one, you know, the, the reasons why we don't hear about this record very much, where you might hear about Riot and Legs Diamond, because those guys had careers. They played live. They went out and did stuff. So what happens with Ram Jam? So the, so the day, essentially, the day, the week that this album comes out, uh, it's it's ready to hit the shops. Mike tells the band, I'm going to jail, and I'm going to jail for a long time. He ended up going to jail for like a year and, and four days or something. I think that was the quote. He said, uh, you know, I because I counted, that's why I know. So he goes away, and Ram Jam basically self, self-combusts. I mean, I'm looking at the wiki page right now. It says there were touring members through 79, and all five of those guys are five different guys. So A... Mike is gone. There is no band. I mean, they 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 put together K and K essentially puts together this fake band and they just tour around the Eastern Seaboard clubs a tiny tiny bit and whimper off, never to be heard from again. Every single member of this band was never to be heard from again. So Bill Bartlett, he essentially when he found out it wasn't cutting it and his record that he was making, the leader of the band wasn't going to be put out. Bill plays not a single note on Portrait of the Artist as a Young Ram. That's that's one of the crazy things about this. He just packs up, doesn't tell anybody, and just goes back to Indiana is never heard from again. Two other guys die in the band. Peter Charles dies. Um, he dies in 2002, says Wiki, and, and Howie dies as well. So two of the guys in the band are just not even no longer with us. So Mike goes away. Jimmy disappears. Now, Jimmy actually uh, interviewed him. Great guy. He got a BA, and then he got a master's in music. Um, and he went on to be a music teacher. Um, so this band completely self, self-destructs. self Now, the other thing that happens, which is kind of interesting. So first I want to say like a parallel with the graphics. So again, the album's called Portrait of a Young Ram. Uh, uh, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Ram, which is a pun on the uh, the James Joyce classic Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. It's got this silly picture of a ram on the cover. Reminds you a little bit of Riot with their uh, with their seal. Uh, you know, made up to look like Rembrandt. Totally does not look like a heavy album. Again, could be a Weatherport album, a Brand X album, a Santana album. Uh, could be anything. You turn it over to the back. Jimmy's got like a Hawaiian shirt on. The other guys look kind of rockery. Bill Bartlett is over there, you know, kind of shoved into the corner almost ironically. You know, he's got glasses and a turtleneck on and a, and a beard. So he's looking very out of place. The other guys are looking fairly rocky, but not that rocky. Um, so again, it looks like a band that could be an avocado mafia band playing the Troubadour. It looks like the Doobies or the Eagles or the guys in Fleetwood Mac. It just looks like any other, you know, country rock band, Southern rock band. So there's another reason why people didn't cotton on that this was a super heavy album. Another reason, okay, so the other reason, of course, is that they're not out touring, so they're not out doing anything, so they're gone, they disappear. But Mike says that basically Epic, in the disgust of Mike going off to jail and the band being no more, like losing this great lead singer that they had. Um, So 
Mike says the album got pulled, and it had been up to something like he thinks around 89,000 copies, and it got pulled. And and I'm telling Mike, you know, well, I used to see this since the day it came out. You know, I always saw this this record in record stores. It wasn't super, super rare. Um, But when you think about it, if 89,000 copies got out there and into circulation, it's it's understandable that you would see it all this time. Um, It's a lot of records. But, you know... I, I'd never heard this story about it actually being pulled. That is quite bizarre to me. Now, later on, there were there were just very scant CD issues. There was this strange remix thing of, of Black Betty that came out later on. But nobody in this band was ever heard from ever again. And they made this absolute classic super heavy metal album. So basically, Mike goes to jail. He gets out of jail. He becomes like a pastor at a church for five years. And he starts doing prison um prison ministry and he says he became friends with David Berkowitz the son of Sam and it's funny he says he's the nicest guy the most gentle guy you would you would know believe me I know conning like he was in con he was a you know busted for for dealing drugs all this stuff he's a rock and roll he's he's got this hit this lesson in rock and roll from from two of the old dogs uh, of of this whole thing so he says I know conning when I see it believe me and he is not conning this guy has had a complete conversion so he he became buddies with the son of Sam, which is crazy. And he also says when he was in prison working up in Clinton, he, you know, they would do hard labor and, and essentially they, um, they did a lot of stuff to, uh, to put together the 1980 winter Olympics in upstate New York. So that's kind of wild. And the, and the other thing, you know, just like all these guys as a corollary between Bill Bartlett, not belonging in this band, Mike's favorite music is, is the, is the cool early garage rock and roll of the sixties, Rolling Stones, Yardbirds. So Mike put together his original band back again and put out some, some CDs. Uh, they were called the Doughboys and they sound like modern day, uh, Yardbirds sort of thing. So, and yeah, so he had an insurance agency. I don't think I mentioned that. So that, that was, that was his main job. At least it was when I did this long story for these two books that I did two chapters and two separate books. This was back in like 2009. Um, so, so yeah, crazy story, isn't it? So what I want you to do, I mean, I, I hope, I hope this episode, you can share it with your friends. Uh, I think it's a pretty cool story, uh, and they would get to hear an amazing, amazing jewel of an old, early heavy metal album. You know, granted, 78 isn't that early. But, you know, please tweet about it on Twitter. I'm not much of a Twitter guy. I never got Twitter, so please be a little bit of my Twitter army. Go to History and Five uh, five Songs, the, the Facebook page. Uh, comment. Uh, you know, we, we've got a pretty active community over there. You guys are super smart people on music. You're always on my mind when I make these episodes so I I don't uh, you know I am not I'm not talking to the common denominator here we are we are we are talking fast and about and 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 about some pretty obscure things and I I know you guys are right with me on it so that so that I love um but yeah that's the story. Um, you know, I've had some new books out recently. You can go to martinpopoff.com. There's PayPal buttons for everything. I sign them, send them out. The latest one three days ago was uh, into our black, what did I call it? Black Funeral Into the Coven with Merciful Fate. Uh, the Rainbow Book is gone, so please don't uh, try order the Rainbow Book, uh, even though it's still at my site. The Two Iron Maidens, I still have stock of those, and The Two Priests, I still have stock of those, and the and the two top 50, uh, 250 books. So there you go. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Go try these albums out. It's not a lot of homework. There's only two records, 1977, 1978. Um, That is it for now. We shall talk to you again next time on History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff. 
Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.